Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Nish Kumar. And I'm Joel Domit. Like, we're always together. <laughs> Once again, we're travelling the globe to take on some of the world's toughest challenges. Oh, it's the hardest day's work I've ever done, genuinely. You haven't even done a day. We are not prepared. From the sumos of Japan to the gauchos of Argentina. Uh, excuse me? We're learning what it takes to be real men. Stop staring at my butt! Hello, listeners. What was that you heard? Oh, I'll tell you. That was me a few years ago, travelling the globe with my friend Joel Domit for the Comedy Central show Joel and Nish versus the World. Our carbon footprint was a nightmare, but I've got to admit, we loved every minute of it. We went to Japan twice, we met Maasai warriors in Kenya who were so inspiring, we hung out with Shaolin monks in China who were incredibly cool and a little bit scary, and we scaled the Andes in Peru. Lovely country, not my favourite trip, to cut a long story short, I shat myself on a mountain. And I also learned to shear sheep in New Zealand, which was great though a skill that's not particularly transferable given I live in London. I also learned how to play the Kodo drums, I did some sexy Argentinian dancing, and I got possibly good at sumo wrestling, which it turns out I'm weirdly good at, and the outfits are very flattering. Fast forward to April 2021, and the only new skill I've acquired is how to consume an entire family pack of donuts without getting covered in sugar and jam by simply inhaling the entire contents within seconds. Also, simultaneously replying to three different WhatsApp group chats whilst badly frying an egg. I'm now sat in a small room in my house where I do all of my work now. This is where I recorded episodes of The Mash Report during the first lockdown with questionable facial hair because I suddenly had to do my own hair and makeup and it turns out I'm as bad at applying concealer as I am using a beard trimmer. And this is where I recorded an episode of the News Quiz. This is where I've done countless online gigs with audiences weirdly piped in via Zoom. This five metre by five metre space has become my whole universe. So welcome to my universe and welcome to that podcast an audio storytelling project that sees writers, comedians, musicians, scientists, journalists and everyday people from all walks of life tell us tales of the extraordinary and the everyday to make sense of the world we live in. I'm your host, Nish Kumar. In today's episode, that podcast where we feel the pull of wanderlust and travel with our imaginations and also sometimes our feet, we're going to talk about travel, migration and wanderlust. So what I tended to do was continue to book things in the hope they would happen. Sure, I might have been making a sandcastle on a beach in St. Ives, age six, but where was my head? Thinking about when I was three and I fell off the swing. I remember getting this ticket in the post and thinking, oh my God, this is a free plane ticket. (laughs) (laughs) I've got this wild beast inside which I want to unleash. Growing out of his chest, exactly where the pain sat, was a twig. 
and then literally one week before I was due to set off is when we went into lockdown. I'm one of only 140 black professors in the country, uh, which means we can't all get on a plane together, just in <laughs> yeah, case, guys. just in case it's a disaster. <laughs> Sounds absolutely yeah. batshit crazy, but why not? Yeah, I exactly. am batshit crazy. With more and more travel restrictions being lifted in the coming weeks and months, I know a lot of us are itching to get out into the world where and when we can. After all, the most travelling any of us have been doing over the last year and a bit is with our endlessly scrolling thumbs, searching in vain for some meme or TV show or podcast like this one, thanks for listening, that will break the ennui of the stay-at-home shit show that is 2020 slash 21. Nobody will be surprised that, according to an Ofcom report, viewing figures for video streaming services in 2020 were up by 71% compared to the year before. Netflix alone has more than 203 million subscribers right now. And that's not even counting all those freeloaders. Yeah, I'm talking about you using your girlfriend's brother's account because he hasn't worked out how to change his password yet. You make me sick. So I guess the pandemic has meant that we've gotten better at journeying with our imaginations rather than our feet. And while we're not jetting around the globe on planes, trains and automobiles just yet, that apparently doesn't stop us feeling the pull of wanderlust by binging travel and nature documentaries. I love how travel programmes are such a staple for British television audiences. Nothing can dampen our enthusiasm for seeing hapless British men blundering politely about in places, always with that spicy undercurrent of embarrassment about the fact that their ancestors probably plundered and colonised whatever beautiful landscape they're currently admiring. Or, in my case, an even spicier source of embarrassment, namely an intense and debilitating case of diarrhoea. Once again, let me take this opportunity to apologise to the people of Peru. I'm deeply sorry, lo siento. I had several plans, actually, throughout 2020. First of all was in March. I had booked in to go to Turin in Italy. That was going to be a winter skills, mountaineering, skiing and snowboarding and such. And then, unfortunately, that was more or less one of the epicenters of Europe where things started to kick off. I also had a second trip planned in the summertime, August. So I'm an aspiring surfer, I'm still learning, but I had booked in a week in Portugal. Again, that was something that fell through. So I tried to plan something slightly closer to home. So I had a small week booked away to go and do some surfing in Croyd Bay in Devon. And then unfortunately we weren't allowed to travel away from home and that was in October. I would consider myself a real optimist, um, perhaps to my own detriment, but I was remaining very optimistic throughout the whole of 2020. So what I tended to do was continue to book things in the hope they would happen. I was left disappointed several times, but what I did to keep myself motivated was always have something planned. Looking forward to something was what my coping strategy was. Between the dirty Rona and Brexit, it's sad that our opportunities to meet other cultures, step outside of our comfort zones and just get a change of scenery have gone up in a puff of smoke. Our individual worlds have become much smaller in lockdown, sure, but the borders of this island already felt like they were tightening the entire time. Travel gives you the humility of perspective. And honestly, I could use some of that right now. So in an effort to get some of that sweet, sweet perspective, let's dive into this episode all about journeys. Let's find out how people at home have been travelling with their imaginations and going on explorations of the mind. 
Let's hear the stories of people who, despite the pandemic, had no choice but to pull on their boots and undertake dangerous odysseys to safer shores. And let's see what adventures the future holds for all of us. We're going to explore questions around climate change and borders and how this year has changed us, changed the soul of our nation. Pack your travel pillow and don't forget your toothbrush. We're going to find out. Let's get right into it with Act One of the podcast, where we go on flights of fancy. Remember back to when we entered that first lockdown last year? I mean, the world just stopped. The writer and comedian Jordan Brooks, like many of us, struggled to adapt to the new normal. But in the piece you're about to hear, The Prodigal Self, he takes us with him back to that moment on a roller coaster ride of self discovery and imagination through a time of crisis that illustrates just how much our minds yearn to roam even when our bodies can't. In early 2020, I was touring, performing around Europe. It was my favourite thing. I love to travel for gigs. I love the orderliness of hotels, airports, train stations, the car journeys, that constant momentum sat by a window in a chair of a moving thing, watching everything whiz to a blur, never sticking around anywhere long enough to get bored or cause any unnecessary drama for myself. Then, and I don't know if you heard about this, but I had this awful global pandemic happen to me. I had to go into lockdown. A few others did too, I think. I was convinced this was the beginning of the end of the world. I sat by my bedroom window, smoking and drinking, watching the sky creep past in agonisingly minute detail. Like watching one of those new films where they boast about filming at a high frame rate, but when you watch it, it's almost too much detail. An uncanny HD. Between bouts of deliberately fluttering my eyelids to make the sky seem less detailed, in my head I'd reach a bunch of epiphanies about myself. But the sort of almost planned epiphanies you store up for right at the end, where you hurriedly resolve your grudges and forgive your past self before the credits finally roll on everything. I did this for about two more months before I realised the end was never coming. Or at least was coming too slowly. Either way, I was now full-time addicted to nicotine, passing out drunk most evenings, and was absolutely sick to the back teeth of epiphanies. I started worrying I was heading towards self-betterment out of sheer boredom. I wanted to get back on the road. I wanted to get to a train station and drop my bags to the floor, taking a deep breath and a long look at the departures board. I needed to go somewhere, anywhere. So once the first lockdown was over, I did the next best thing. I fled to my parents' house in the West Country. I smiled while sat on the train as everything blurred past me, my mouth agape like a happy dog with its head out the car window. I'm not sure how different I thought it would be there compared to London, but I guess I wanted to check that that gloomy Day of Reckoning vibe wasn't just unique to being in the capital, a place that can feel bleak even at its most joyous, where every smile is a gutter for falling tears. Arriving at my parents' house, I immediately tried not to settle. I didn't sit down for the first hour, and when finally I did, I perched on the arm of the sofa, even squatting slightly so my full weight didn't sink into it. I kept this hovering routine up for the rest of the day, interacting loosely with every surface, only lightly flicking the kettle on, only limply holding my coffee, only gently patting the carpet when my mug spilled out of my hand. I made it to the evening, 
and said goodnight to my parents, my mum saying goodnight in return, but also asking if I intended to sleep in my shoes and coat. I took them off and tried to exercise, anything to avoid sitting at my window. While doing push-ups, I thought, next, I'll do squats. While doing squats, I thought, next, I'll do bicep curls. While doing bicep curls, I thought, next, I'll do window sits. While doing some window sits, I thought, wait, what's a window sit? It was too late. I was now sat by my window, staring at the night sky. I tried to resist. Get up and do some deep thinkings, I thought. No, not deep thinkings, jumping jacks. I mean, jumping jacks. But I didn't move. And in my impotent resistance, something odd happened. This time, I was reminded of when I was last doing this in London. It felt like a copy, a reconstruction. I was there, but also in London. Where had I been when I was anywhere, at any point in my life? Sure, I might have been making a sandcastle on a beach in St. Ives, age six, but where was my head? Thinking about when I was three and I fell off the swings. Yes, I might have been watching my auntie get married when I was 21, but where was my head? Thinking about when I was 14, watching Man United win the treble. And where was I when that was happening? How much of my life has been spent remembering the time I remembered? On and on it went. I felt like when you turn a camera to the TV that's outputting what's on the camera and it shows an endless spiral of it filming itself. It made me feel like I'd taken a step outside of me, as if it wasn't me I was thinking about. Like I'd taken a psychedelic and I'd got that feeling of trying to maintain in the face of a mounting panic, of trying not to lose my ego or control of my bowels. I wanted to be on a train, in a car, anything, just moving. I I wanted that blur. In fright at losing my grip, soon I was scrolling through my Rolodex of memories, almost to remind myself of who I was, plucking stuff at random at lightning speed, waving them at myself like a rattle at a crying baby. I thought about getting my degree, the first time I had sex, the first moment in the relationship where you fall out and both refuse to be reasonable, even for a brief moment, a little glimpse of the grief of what's to come when you eventually break up. I thought about when my friend crashed his car full of our friends and how when I heard about it there was a big part of me that was disappointed that no one had been killed so I couldn't have a big cry like they do in films. I thought about my parents' divorce, the first time I shat myself at the cinema. No need for the first time there, it only happened once. A holiday to Morocco where I bought what I thought was hash and it turned out to be a compacted block of mud covered in sand. Still got high anyway, just off the buzz of the purchase. The time I built a Lego pirate ship and I took it into the bath with me and it started to sink and fill with water and all the little people went everywhere and I was five years old, by the way, I should have said that at the start. It was as if my life was flashing before my eyes. None of this helped. I was taking more and more steps away from myself. My heart was pounding. Is this what it's like to lose your mind? And then, a fox or something snapped me out of it. I seized this brief break to draw myself away from the window and went to bed. I was downstairs the next day when I first saw it. I was standing by the patio doors looking out at the garden mid-afternoon and there was that noise again. I went outside and over to the bush where I'd seen the movement. At first, I casually shifted a few branches to one side like a half-hearted curtain twitcher reacting to a low-key argument in the street. But very quickly, I was properly pulling at them, snapping and sifting, getting them caught between my fingers, to the point where I wondered if I tried to pull my hands out, I might have them stuck. And then, it jumped out. Whatever it was, hit my chest with a slippery crunch and scampered into the house. I yanked my hands free and followed. 
There it was on the kitchen floor, panting. I wish I had the words to describe it. it. It was an animal, I guess. It was furry in places, and yet not. It had two legs, or maybe four, maybe ten. I can't be sure. It was about the size of a cat, if a cat was the size of a human being. It struggled to stand upright on the tiled floor with its long talons, quickly giving up and doing a sort of manic jump canter instead. My parents were in the living room down the hall. I didn't want them to hear this. Shh, I said, trying to shoo it out and shush it at the same time and failing to do either. I still couldn't make it out. This heaving, snarling, furry, bald, postural-covered, oozing, cuddly thing. I felt like I couldn't focus my eyes. Looking at it gave me that weird feeling I'd had the night before. It suddenly made itself small, looking up at me with these huge, cute eyes, almost pleading for mercy. It's okay, I whispered. It's okay. I reached out and stroked its face. It wailed in pain, and suddenly it was on me. One, two, maybe twenty arms, punching me hard in the face. I managed to get it in a headlock before it bit my arm and leapt onto the kitchen surface. In response, I landed a smack to the side of its head, causing it to cower and bark a noise that sounded like, Fucking hell, I'm so sorry! Before getting real big and jumping for me. We wrestled to the floor, a mad scramble of limbs, both of us out of breath. And then we slowed... And it became this kind of, like, sensual hug. We were just lying there, looking into each other's eyes. I'm not sure why, but I suddenly felt calm. That sort of deep calm you only feel when you've meditated and it makes you cry a bit because you've genuinely forgotten how relaxed you could be all the time if only you didn't meditate just a handful of times a year. Were we about to kiss? No, surely not. Were we? Maybe. I couldn't tell for sure because the movement was so small, it was so slight, but I felt my face start to move a little closer to theirs, at which point it hissed at me, or maybe it said, no thank you, and then ran down the hall into the living room. The fuck is this? I heard my stepdad shout. I ran in. This thing was scampering up the walls and jumping off onto the shelves, hitting the TV, knocking a lamp over. It finally settled under the coffee table and growled. Or maybe it asked me how I was. Oh my god! Screamed my mum, leaving and slamming the door. Don't shut me in with it, said my stepdad, following. Sorry, I, I don't know what it is. It was in the garden, I said, getting on my knees to get a good look at it. But I still couldn't. I could hear my parents the other side of the door. Shall I call the police? asked my mum. Should we give it some milk? asked my stepdad. Why would you give it milk? You can't just solve everything with a saucer of milk. It was exchanges like that that reminded me why I'd stayed away so long. Anyway, the milk thing worked. It lapped it up and managed a smile of sorts. I like it, said my stepdad, laying down sheets of his newspaper in case it needed to pee. My mum stood in the corner of the room holding the phone like a knife. She insisted we let it back out into the garden, and my stepdad kept making excuses for why we needed to keep it indoors, until somehow both it and my stepdad were having a nap on the sofa, and my mum was hovering on the arm, flicking through the channels, occasionally glancing over and rolling her eyes. Over the following weeks, my mum softened, and the thing quickly acclimatised, though not without some unpredictable behaviour. One day it would be onto the sofa, hissing and scratching at our feet with its hundreds of finger paws. The next it would be in the kitchen, making itself a coffee and wishing me a good morning. It lived a healthy and happy life. 
My mum still slept with her phone under the pillow, despite insisting she'd stopped doing that, but it was very much part of the family. Until it died of old age one evening. Breathing one final deep sigh on my stepdad's lap during EastEnders. That night, I slept with my coat and shoes on. And the next morning, I got on the train and headed back to London. I spent the journey looking out the window at the blur, watching it slowly upgrade to HD as the train arrived at each station, before returning as it set off again. That was Jordan Brooks with The Prodigal Self. We all, to a greater or lesser extent, had to wrestle with ourselves and our mental health like never before in 2020 and 21. I know I did. And a lot of us have felt our minds go in circles, desperate for contact, escapism and distraction. But some people have found creative ways to go on flights of fancy and reach out to each other. So, I was booked to go work at a theatre in rep for a whole year. And as I'm packing up the van, we got locked down. So subsequently, I became homeless and jobless. So I've been staying with my mum and she has COPD. So she's been shielding for the year. And that means that I've not been able to, you know, when we were on like tier two or, you know, whatever tier we were on, I wasn't able to socialise like other people might be able to, because obviously I don't want to bring COVID home to my mum. So I taught myself how to um, live stream in two weeks from watching YouTube videos and taught myself vision mixing and all that and basically created two standalone shows to kind of showcase northern artists like from West Yorkshire. And then it just carried on going every week. We recently spoke about like mental health in the black community and the black live streaming community. And we were all in agreement that we don't know what we would have done without live streaming without Twitch, without our communities, without Black Twitch UK and Black Girl Gamers and Naysaga and Nerd Council. We kind of created a digital family, if you will, and that sounds really cheesy, but it really is a family. We're speaking to each other live nearly every day, We're spending time with each other in each other's streams, giving advice, cracking jokes, having a laugh, you know. Honestly, there is a sense of solace, like, without that, I'd have gone stir crazy. In 2019, I was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer four days after the birth of my little baby girl. I spent basically a whole year at home between treatments, but not being able to really interact with people. And then, as everyone knows, a year later, COVID happened. So when I should have been going back to real world, I got isolated yet again, and even more so. I wasn't able to see my friends. I wasn't able to see family as much. So I started actually in the Animal Crossing community, and it was a way to kind of escape. I ended up finding a community, and they have really been the friends I never knew I'd have. It's the Madla Stream Team on Twitch. The amazing part about an online community, if you don't use your real name, is that you can really be yourself. You don't have to put up a front. One of the streamers reached out to me and every single week asked me how I'm doing with my cancer diagnosis. His ex-wife was a cancer warrior too. And so he asked me the hard questions. 
And it's amazing how someone you've never met in person can cross those boundaries and get to the root of it. And you can be honest. You can talk about the bad things. You can talk about the things that other people are scared about. And I've never met this person. I want to tell you a story about a kid who lived in his parents' basement. His name was Matt Steen. And he was an extraordinary guy in Norway who unfortunately suffered from Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a serious degenerative disease. Now, Matt's lived in his parents, Robert and Trude's basement. And even though this was years before lockdown, he barely ever left because of the restrictions of his condition. But he had an absolutely stupid amount of friends all over the world. He went on a ton of adventures. Because here's the thing, he wasn't just Matt's, a young man in a small Norwegian town. He was Ibelin. Nobleman Philander, a detective of the World of Warcraft universe. For those unfamiliar, World of Warcraft is a massive multiplayer online role-playing game. Basically, it's a huge fantasy universe populated by 4.88 million players pretending to be gnomes and dwarves and blood elves and somehow inexplicably pandas or pandaren if you're a fucking nerd. Ibelin was brave and charismatic and funny and he attracted a huge amount of mates. But more importantly, the man behind Ibelin, Matt, was at the heart of a really genuine, loving community. When Matt's very sadly passed away at the far too young age of 25, his friends from all across the world lit candles for him. The community raised money for some of his closest online friends to travel to Norway from abroad so that they could be at his funeral. His parents were overwhelmed with messages of love coming from people they'd never met, but Matt's had. According to his dad, Matt's played between 15,000 and 20,000 hours of World of Warcraft across the last 10 years of his life. Matt saw Lord Ibelin Redmore and sometimes another character called Jerome Walker as extensions of himself, representing different aspects of his personality. As Ibelin, he journeyed all across the world of Azeroth, going to the inns and meeting new people. It makes you think about how few spaces there are in the world where you can genuinely meet someone without bias or preconceptions or stereotypes, where you can transcend physical boundaries like that. It was clearly really important for this guy to be able to explore and meet new people and learn new things, as it is for all of us. And so he found a way to do that, despite his restrictions, with the help of a little technology and a lot of imagination. Matt himself called his screen a gateway to wherever your heart desires. Hi, I'm Kyle. I am from the south of the UK, and online I go by Fraswar. When I was a kid, I never found anybody online. It was like this weird stigma behind meeting somebody online or making a friend online. There was a whole thing, stranger danger, and the internet is filled with predators that are going to come for you. And then when I was particularly bored and looking for something creative, I created a game stream online, and that was like the first time ever that I realised that, hey, the internet isn't filled with weirdos and perverts. Actually, there's a load of people out there that are really enjoyable to hang out with. And luckily, that is a completely and utterly remote thing that I can do. I've made some genuine friends through what I thought was just going to be a little bit of a project to keep me from going crazy. I've seen a lot of people getting into, like, GeoGuessr and stuff. GeoGuessr is, like... Google Maps has dropped you in the middle of nowhere and you have to guess exactly where you are based off of context clues that you can just walk around the streets, you know, like Google Maps. It definitely feels 
the closest, I suppose, to sightseeing when you literally can't go anywhere and sightsee. And obviously it's all wrapped up in a game, which makes it fun. Getting into D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, um, got me to, despite the anxiety, social anxiety and stuff, it's kind of my way to try to get out of my shell. And the fact that I have to think on my feet, it throws me out of my comfort zone enough that it's not too much, but I'm seeing myself grow. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For those who aren't into games, though, people still found other ways to escape. Even in a global pandemic, a lot of us heard the call to adventure and found cheap, safe, imaginative ways to try and answer it. My name's Max. And my name's Tom. And we're the proud owners of Vivian, our canary yellow camper van. So Vivian's origin story was we were looking at renting motorhomes and just realised that they're actually very, very expensive. It doesn't actually cost that much to get a rickety old ex-commercial van and then kit it out to be a camper. Yeah, although we also had zero skill. We had, oh, yeah, we, less than zero. We had a lot of enthusiasm and we were prepared to sit in front of YouTube for about six months. Yeah, so she's a, an old DHL van that we've put some complicated plywood arrangement in the back that becomes a table and chairs and a little kitchenette and also a bed and there's a shelf and there's windows in the back and in the sliding side door and then some venting and solar panel and things on the roof and her own electrical system. So she's basic and I think she could still pass for a builder's van. In the background you can probably hear that we're in her right now. We've just had breakfast. We're staying at one of our favourite campsites in Sussex. St Ives was the first week away we had in her after lockdown number one finished. Sliding her side door open and just looking from bed, looking straight out through the awning down at the St Ives Bay, do you remember that? And near the sun and it's just a particularly beautiful piece of headland and nobody interrupting our view. That was really nice. Yeah, That's it. she's a dream, she's our girl. For me, I've always been somebody who I feel I was born in the wrong century. Like, I wish I was born as, like, a samurai warrior. (laughs) Or something like that, because, like, I've got this wild beast inside which I want to unleash. I'm an avid jet setter. Like, I travel the world whenever I can. 
whatever flight I can get on and for me not to be able to travel. I almost felt like my inner traveler or that inner wild beast was being confined at home in a prison and I yeah. just, it was too much. Yeah. Somewhere along the line like so hey just invited me to come cold swimming I was like okay fine let's give this a try it sounds absolute yeah. batshit crazy but why not? Yeah, I exactly. am batshit crazy. Crazy <laughs> attracts crazy. I grew up spending the summers in the beach we used to go to Spain. I just love swimming. I love being around the water. Obviously, you don't get that being in London, being in a city. And I was introduced to cold swimming by a colleague and I was very interested and I decided to give it a go. And it's insane. Like the benefits have been so profound. I remember Sahib once telling me that cold water immersion is one of the closest real nature experiences you get. So I yeah. jumped on it as soon as I could. There's a bit in Harry Potter in the seventh book when he's collecting one of the Horcruxes or whatever, which is like mm. one of the pieces of Lord Voldemort's soul. And he has to jump into an ice lake. And the way J.K. Yeah. Rowling describes it, she said it was as if all the cells in his body were screaming in protest. And I felt literally that. I was like, J.K. Rowling, you really yeah. nailed this one. That's yeah. exactly what I felt but I love the thrill. I feel alive after a swim and I feel like He-Man and it's great, I love it. And then also with the pandemic, I've had family losses, mm. massive responsibilities coming on my head and I almost felt like I was drowning. And I always say to people who ask me about cold swimming, I said like, a cold heart will do you more harm than cold water. And uh, honestly, yeah. like, it's, <laughs> it's true because I've had to face like a lot of problems and difficulties and. And for me, between this and running, this is how I'm surviving. I guess I never had the intention of getting people involved because there are certain things that I do sometimes that I have no intention of asking anyone to join me, like exploring abandoned buildings, for example. You know, there are certain dangers that are involved in doing something like that, but yeah. if you can handle it, honestly, it's, and it sounds very cliche, but it's, it really is life-changing. So here to celebrate the joy of a British holiday, now we're allowed to holiday within the UK again. With a unique perspective on the beauty of our landscapes is travel writer Ginny Reddy, author of Wonderland, A Search for Magic in the Landscape. In high school, in my yearbook, I wrote something like I've always wanted to travel the world. But I grew up in the pre-digital era and I didn't know anything about this world of travel writing. I certainly didn't see anybody who looked like me doing these kinds of things in the media. So I quit my job, as people do, you know, in your 20s and went backpacking, went to Nepal with 500 quid in my pocket and everything fell through. Somehow I ended up in India, in Calcutta. Till that point, I hadn't even looked at a map of India. <laughs> and I had this experience of volunteering in Calcutta and it felt quite meaningful. So eventually when I came back to the UK, I was temping and I was miserable. And while I was meant to be doing this temping work, I was trying to write what I thought might be an article about my experience in Calcutta. Then I posted it to every newspaper. And eventually I got this letter from the Times and they said that they were going to use it. So that was my first experience of having a feature in print. Once things have started, can you remember your first trip that you were going on for purely professional reasons? I think it was to Japan. And wow. this was in the time when you still got paper plane tickets. Yeah. And <laughs> I remember getting this ticket in the post and thinking, oh my God, this is a free plane ticket. <laughs> <laughs> 
I had to pinch myself the whole time I was traveling through Japan. Oh my God, I'm eating Japanese food and I'm not paying for it. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, I'm on a train. I'm on a bullet train. And I didn't pay for it. <laughs> but I wanted to tell you about one trip I did. Yeah. So I pitched this idea about visiting a lost city in Guatemala. And the reason I pitched it was because I thought it was so obscure and nobody else would pitch it and therefore I'd get the commission, um, which is what happened. And then I couldn't find a guy to take me there. And in the end, I ended up going in with nine jungle patrollers to this lost city called El Mirador. What's a jungle patrol? Like an army person? Well, they're kind of like park rangers, but they're on the lookout for people coming across the border with drugs. <laughs> um, oh, my God. And so we set off walking in the jungle three days and nights. And we got to this lost city. And the head honcho of these jungle patrollers, he was really very macho. And he was pissing me off because he kept asking me to shoot at trees and just do these macho things. And what, like shoot a gun at trees? Yeah. They just handed you a gun at some point. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so by the time we got to this lost city, you know, the howler monkeys started screeching. And I don't know if you've ever heard a howler monkey, but there's something really no. ghostly about the sound of them. Um, wow. And we got to this lost city and we were climbing on top of the world's widest unknown pyramid and I lost my temper I just lost it with this head honcho. Oh, my God. And so he lost face with all of his men. And this is a very Latin culture. Yeah. And so he was furious with me. And as punishment, he made me walk in the jungle on my own because we were going back to this camp. What? And (laughs) I was furious, so I was quite happy to walk off. And so I started walking along this trail into the jungle. So for the first hour, I was just livid and I was thinking of all the ways I was going to sue this guy. (laughs) And then suddenly it dawned on me, like the anger wore off and it dawned on me that I was in a jungle and there were snakes and jaguars, you know. (laughs) And then I started to become quite fearful. You know, there was literally nobody around me and I I thought, what can I do to calm myself down? So I had my little backpack and I had lipstick in there. Don't ask me what I was doing with lipstick in the jungle. So I just stopped and I put my lipstick on. crazy thing thing to do. (laughs) Um, And then I took a sip of water and then I, you know, I thought, okay, I feel better now. And I kept walking and then the fear wore off. And then something interesting happened for me is that I began to feel that everything around me, all the nature around me, the jungle, the trees, everything was kind of for me and speaking to me and not verbally, but supporting me and encouraging me. And I felt for quite a few moments as though the the veil separating myself and the nature out there just dropped and there was a little feeling of oneness. And so I ended up feeling quite euphoric. And by the time I got back to the next camp, I felt incredible as though this had been the real purpose of this trip. And when the head jungle patroller finally found me, um, he was really contrite and, you know, slightly red faced and apologetic. And I said, no, you've actually given me this incredible experience. Wow. (laughs) I mean, listen, there's like five points to that story where I was like, you're a braver person than I am. Point number one, yelling at a man who had a gun. (laughs) I don't know if it's possible for me to lose my temper sufficiently to ever shout at a guy who is packing heat. But I definitely want to pick up on a couple of things that come out of that story, which is, one, there's been an increased sense in your writing that you're not just interested in the natural world and visiting the natural world, but talking about our relationship with the natural world. 
was that kind of the start of your understanding that we are part of that ecosystem? That was part of it, definitely. But also on my travels, I'd had opportunities to meet people from indigenous cultures. Yeah. Hearing about their relationship with the natural world, that feeling of kinship. And also visiting really vast wildernesses, like in Namibia, you know, just feeling completely dwarfed by the landscape and realizing how small I was in the grand scheme of things. Also, you know, I had these other experiences, spending time alone for a few days up a mountain, fasting, and there are no distractions. And so your relationship with the natural world changes. And so I kind of had a visceral experience of that. So then in Wonderland, in the most recent book you've written, you've set out on a quest to kind of identify shamanic, eco-spiritual elements in British landscapes as well? Well, I wanted to see if I could experience a glimpse of the world in the way that those people from indigenous cultures who I'd met did. Yeah. So I was really seeking this spiritual dimension to a journey. And I decided if I was going to do this kind of thing, I wasn't going to use a conventional map and compass. I was going to really enter into the spirit of my endeavor And so I was going to invoke the spirit of the land to guide me and to collaborate with me in this book without truly knowing what I meant by spirit of the land. So this kind of trail of crumbs began to unfold. For instance, I was talking to somebody and she mentioned this treasure map. Yeah. Somebody she knew had created this map and it was just the most beautifully drawn map. And it led to this hidden well, the sacred springs. And whereabouts is this? So it was in the least wild place you could think of. It was outside Hastings. The first time I went to look for this, I took a friend with me, and this springs was meant to be a healing springs. Um, But all day we looked for this place. We couldn't find it. So it was really frustrating. And so we went home and I rang up the person who gave me the map and I said, why is it that I couldn't find it? And she said, well, maybe you just weren't meant to find it that day. And so three months later, I went back and I went back on my own. And that day I had had some bad news and I was really upset and I personally really needed some healing. Um, And so I found everything instantly. Wow. And I just couldn't believe, you know, how come I hadn't seen these things, these clues, this tree, this fork in the bend. And then I came to the springs and it was incredible. I mean, the locals didn't know it was there and it was this magical spot. And, you know, I'm not a kind of skinny dipping person, sure. um, but suddenly I just felt the overwhelming urge to take everything off and then just plunge into this pool. And so I did. Wow. And I came out and I felt completely different. I'd found this treasure and... It just felt like something secret had been unlocked. When you start a project that culminates in a book like Wonderland, so much of which is clearly about you following impulses and, like you say, letting nature tell you where you're going. Is it a case of you trying to have these experiences and then afterwards the skill as a writer is in organising those thoughts into something that feels like a cohesive book? Or do you start from the beginning with a plan? It was a bit of both. I remember thinking, well, how am I supposed to write a table of contents? I don't really know what I'm doing. (laughs) I was trying to kind of get into this magical mindset so that there was a kind of innocence to it when I was writing it. What what are your favourite places to go in Britain? I really love the Isles of Scilly. I've only been once, but I was completely enchanted. I stayed on Briar Island, and I think the population is something like 90. I love coastal landscapes, and I love the freedom to just get a backpack and go for a walk on my own and not have to worry about bumping into people. 
<laughs> also, this summer, I managed to get away to the Isle of Lewis up in the Hebrides, which was a 12-hour journey. I could have got to Australia in that time. Um, <laughs> But when I got there, we were so lucky. It happened to be the best weather they were having in the whole year. And so it was wow. like being in the Caribbean, but with these pristine white sand beaches and no people. Wonderland, which has been shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize and the Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year Award, is now available in paperback. It's interesting. Loads of studies have found that travel, vacation and time in nature are linked to better mental health. Things like enhanced empathy, attention, energy and focus. One study at Cornell University shows that even just planning and talking about a trip can improve your mood. So I, for one, am delighted we can look forward to holidays again, even if only slowly, carefully and responsibly. Because let's face it, we could all use a little bit of happiness. For now, we'll have to rely on stories to take us around the world. Here's Twig by Sami Ibrahim about a boy, a tree and the flights of fancy that take us to all the nooks and crannies of the universe. One day, the boy felt a sharp pain. Something like a burning, right in the middle of his chest. It was recurrent. He complained about it frequently to his mother, who took him to a doctor, who held a stethoscope to the boy's chest and looked perplexed. The child has no physical symptoms that I can detect, the doctor said and then looked down at the boy. Do you tend to feel anxious? To which the boy shrugged. And then the doctor shrugged. And the appointment was over. The boy left without answers, albeit with a lollipop. At home, the pain held steady, despite the lollipop, and the boy struggled to sleep. And when he did sleep, his dreams were warped into nightmares. After one particularly stark nightmare, he woke to find the pain had dulled. He waded to the bathroom and looked in the mirror. He took off his vest. He wiped his eyes and saw that growing out of his chest, exactly where the pain sat, was a twig. He looked down and could see the spot where the twig had pushed up through his skin. Confused, scared perhaps, he decided not to tell his mother. Except the twig was difficult to hide beneath a t-shirt. What's that? she said over breakfast. Nothing. It's a twig. What's wrong with it? And his mother wasn't ready for an argument. Not over breakfast. She simply got on with her day. But then the twig grew. It became a stick and then a branch. At which point his mother asked why a branch was growing out of her son's chest. He shrugged, as he usually did, and she took him back to the doctor, who held the same stethoscope to the boy and again looked perplexed. Well, it beats me. The boy's mother looked at the doctor and she started shouting. It didn't take long before they were thrown out and the boy left without a lollipop. After that, things progressed quickly. Within another week, the boy could no longer remain at home. The branch had turned into something like a trunk. Naturally, a two-bed, fourth-floor flat was no place for it. 
The boy could barely walk, and navigating the stairwell was almost impossible. His mother looked at him with despair. They were speaking less and less. Breakfast was increasingly awkward. Eventually, she borrowed a wheelbarrow and pushed the boy to the local park. She tipped him out and he lay in the grass under the summer sun. The pain, certainly, was beginning to fade. But the boy wondered if perhaps he was worse off now that a tree was growing out of his chest. Unluckily for him, the warm sun and light rain showers made for perfect tree-growing conditions. The trunk swiftly grew higher and higher, sprouting branches of its own, which in turn sprouted leaves. Insects were tempted in. Birds nestled. A whole ecosystem rested on the boy's chest. When he tried to scratch his back, he could feel roots creeping out the pores of his skin, pushing into the ground. All he could do was shift his head, slowly gazing from side to side. Meanwhile, his mother tried to comfort him as much as she could. She read to him. She brought him human food, except he didn't have much of an appetite since most of his nutrients now came from the soil. Truth be told, the boy's mother started to grow self-conscious. She ran out of conversation topics. She felt embarrassed about having a tree for a son. She didn't like all the tourists taking photos. One day, she simply stopped turning up. And that was that. Humans can be so fickle. Most of the time, the boy simply lay in the grass, held in place by roots. Watching children play football, seeing couples stroll, families laugh. The world seemed to be laid out in front of him as a tableau, perfectly designed to make his gut churn with jealousy. He missed the freedom of being treeless. He missed the days when he didn't cough up soil. And then summer waved goodbye. And the tree was, to the boy's bad luck, deciduous. He woke up one morning to find himself covered in discarded leaves. He tried to clear them away, but it was no use. His arms had been embedded in the earth. His fingers tucked into the soil. He tried calling out, but bark had sealed his lips shut. He was forgotten. The world around grew steadily colder, steadily emptier. And time seemed to act strangely, stretching out and springing back into place. There was nothing to be done but wait. He tried to imagine what was happening beyond the edge of his vision, but as much as he strained, all he could see was grass stretching into the distance. One time he thought he saw his mother in the corner of his eye, stealing looks at him, but he couldn't be sure. He kept waiting. Sometimes he thought he heard human voices, 
usually he didn't. Sometimes he looked up and catalogued the birds cooing in his topmost branches. That comforted him. Some of them would only spend a few days up in his canopy. Others would stay for months at a time. A few of them stopped by simply to drop bird poo on his forehead. But they kept arriving. And because there was nothing else to do, he would listen to them. Their calls echoed through the branches, their voices travelling through the sap and the wood, reaching his hollow ears. He learnt their languages. One summer evening, a particularly handsome swallow recounted the story of her treacherous journey across the Sahara, the bugs she ate along the way, the sandstorms, the winds, the villages she dipped in and out of. A goose dropped in from Iceland, and then another goose, louder and brasher, squawked that she was from Canada. Some Russians stopped by, a gangly Norwegian, a plump South African. A young warbler and his mother arrived from across Europe and spoke of escaping wildfires and wild predators. He liked that story. He liked all the stories. And he liked the way these birds would shout them at each other, over each other, squawking into the night. As he listened, he felt like he was joining them. In flight. Across continents. Weightless, gliding over crashing waves and starved deserts. Storming across cities, tracking along whole rivers. It was nerve-tingling. His canopy shook. The bugs wriggled. Leaves trembled. To hear about the world beyond, to know of it, was everything. To know that the world was still raging. He felt it, like electricity travelling through his sap. His branches poised and trembling, the sharp static. And the more he listened, the taller his branches grew spiking the sky while his head bogged in the grass his body flattened out it was like he could almost reach it that world beyond as the birds kept coming and going he kept listening and he loved it he did from his nook at the foot of a tree the pain long gone his head framed by mud stretched into the sunlight, reaching out. His heart beat quick and his eyes blazed. His ears twitched as the birds sang. That was Twig by Sammy Ibrahim. I do think it's impressive our capacity to use our imagination to scratch the itch of Wanderlust. It feels like the human urge to be curious and reach out is kind of irrepressible, which does give me some hope for the future. And on that note of hope, let's end part one. Now in the second half, we're going to talk about migration, displacement 
borders and the environmental impact of travel. And we're going to ask ourselves if we'd like to see our relationship with the world change once we're through the other side of this thing. Lots to talk about. So see you in part two. Part one of that podcast, where we feel the pull of wonderlust and travel the world with our imaginations and also sometimes our feet, was hosted by Nish Kumar and featured Ginny Reddy and contributions from members of the public. The Prodigal Self was written and performed by Jordan Brooks, with direction and sound design by Ben Walker. The Twig was written by Sami Ibrahim, performed by Lois Chimimba and directed by Anthony Almeida, with sound design by Mike Winship. The host script was written by Jennifer Baxt and Nish Kumar. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Storyglass and ETT co-production. Storyglass.